Right now, we're acquiring about 20 to 30,000 users a day. We've been scaling quite a lot. Like you mentioned, we 10x in the last year. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the rate of, of growth is also accelerating. So in the next few months, uh, it's going to be super, super interesting. Welcome to the Nomad Podcast, where we discuss inspiring stories of lifestyle transition and how to thrive in a location-independent existence. Nomad Podcast is supported in part by Nomad Prep, an online academy to help aspiring digital nomads make a successful transition. And now here's your host, Sean Tierney. What would 20 to 30,000 new users per day mean to your business? Darius Moravchik is head of growth for Reflectly, which is the number two rated health app in the iOS app store. Darius has implemented a brilliant strategy for customer acquisition that involves soliciting user-generated ad content and then using empirical data to guide deployments across a variety of channels and segments. In this interview, Darius shares the details on how he's added over 4 million new users in the year since he's joined Reflectly, his philosophy on A-B testing, thoughts on a new exciting ad channel that he's discovered, and his life as a digital nomad. Before we get there, though, please enjoy a quick word from our sponsor. It's important to have travel insurance as a nomad because stuff happens while we're on the road. And while we hope for the best, we need to always plan for the worst. If you're investigating insurance options, check out Safety Wing. Safety Wing is travel medical insurance specifically designed for nomads. Unlike other providers, you can buy it when you're already on the road and you don't need to continuously update them on when and where you're going next. You just have one monthly subscription that covers you wherever you go for both travel and medical. And if you shop around, you'll find it's about a third of the price of other providers. Visit nomadpodcast.com slash safety wing to get a quote today. And now here's the interview. All right. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Tierney. I'm your host of Nomad Podcast. Welcome to the show. I am here sitting across from Darius Moravchik. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Darius is head of growth at Reflectly. And Reflectly is a digital health company with the most popular journal app in the world. It's a top five iOS apps in health and fitness in the U.S., Uh, Darius is fascinated by human behavior and startups, loves challenges where he gets to learn, and is driven by solving real problems with exciting products. His growth hacking efforts at Reflectly have translated to over 10x growth in the past year since he joined the company, moving them from 400,000 users to 5 million users today. Welcome, Darius, to the show. Thank you so much. Um, All right. Well, let's just jump right in. What is Reflectly? What is this app? So Reflectly is a journaling app, kind of like a diary. People can um, track their feelings and emotions. They can vent their thoughts. Uh, and then we have more of a sort of like a journaling feature where you can actually write out um, how you feel, how your day was. And, and we give you some clues and, um, and questions to reflect upon. And you guys are the top journaling app, is it fair to say? Or? Yeah, I mean, like I think we're the biggest one um, journaling app um, in the world. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we're in the health and fitness category, and a lot of people use it together with meditation. So meditation is sort of a passive way of being mindful, and journaling is more active. We're actually participating. So a lot of people, you know, sort of team up reflectively with other mindfulness practices. And you guys are ahead of apps like even Headspace at one point I saw. It. Like, the, I think of them as, like, kind of the top <laughs> right. health and mindfulness app, and then, yeah, you guys are above that, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, so in terms of the user acquisition right now, we've been consistently above Headspace, for example. I don't know where they are, like, as of today, but we're top five uh, almost every day uh, in the U.S. and top ten sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we're looking at, for example, Calm.com. They're, you know, by far number one almost yep. every single day. Uh, so we're trying to, we've been in number two a couple of times, so we're trying to sort of be in that 
that level. But we're also a very, very different team and different resources, as you know. How okay? So journaling is obviously a crowded space. There's a million journal apps out there. Yeah. What what do you attribute? Like, why are you guys the number one journaling app? What do you think is unique about what you're providing? Um, the product. It's it's um, the product is people really really love the product. Um, and the fact that we all, you know, we launched two years ago, and since our launch, and since we started getting a couple of million users, we saw a lot of apps come in and then sort of try to copy paste and raise capital just based on our success story. So a lot of people are joining now because they see like uh, there is some sort of success. But if you look at the reviews, at, at this point we're getting 200 five-star reviews on the App Store a day. And if you just go through them and it's all public, you can see people just love the product and the design sp- specifically. Actually, we just won the uh, Google Material Design Award for innovation, I think, two, three weeks ago. Yeah. So also Google sort of uh, seeing that that it works. but. Uh, what people, what users tell us is that they love the design and, and the simplicity of it. That we're not trying to push you too hard to like, oh, you have to journal every day or um, uh, we're not trying to overwhelm people with, with too much stuff. It's just, it's simple, easy, and people tend to love it. And what is the, before we started recording, you were telling me about like, the pace at which you're acquiring new users. Can you just speak a little bit about what that is? Yeah, sure. So right now we're acquiring about twenty to 30,000 users a day. Twenty to 30,000 users a day. Yeah, that's the, the new knowledge we're getting in. Uh, and that, this is also like public information. So uh, it's, it's, we've been scaling quite a lot. Like you mentioned, we 10 x in the last year. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the rate of, of growth is also accelerating. So in the next few months, uh, it's going to be super, super interesting. For us, um, just like all the other apps in the health and fitness category, January is a very important month. It's the new year, new me, you know, all these new year uh, uh, resolutions. So... Uh, I'm really much looking forward to how January is going to sort of propel us forward. What, what are you doing to prepare for January right now? Um, so first of all, a lot of I mean a lot of the excitement just happens on the market side. So I mean people will just start downloading so much more, and the prices of ads and all of this will be will be very different. We obviously have a um, sort of we have to do a lot of testing and, and a prep to to get ready for it. But it's hard to test um, specific, for example, content because people's behavior and their uh, mental framework is very different in January. So we could test something now, it doesn't work, but it's going to work in January. Right. So we just want to make sure that the process of testing is ready. And that's what we're working on, you know, every day. That's, I mean, that's the growth job anyways. Right. So um, nothing specific. And then, then, of course, like trying some of the uh, specific, like new Yumi campaigns and all these things. But uh, yeah. yeah. I love, okay, so, so just some quick context for the people listening. Uh, we met at Selena. You had given a talk. Uh, one of these kind of digital nomad growth talks where you just like got up and like basically shared the story. And it was, I was blown away by just like how data driven you are, I guess, how, how you're, you have a very like not a uh, very scientific method by which you go about this stuff. Right. And I'm hoping you can kind of explain to people like, what is your, what is your approach to this whole space? How do you, how do you navigate it? Right. I, I think a lot of my work, a lot of it reflectively as well. I mean, I work very closely with Jacob, uh, CEO, and we're looking at like the acquisition and all these things. And I think our approach is very analytical because we, so we believe the market is always right. Uh, and we basically have zero creative judgment. So, I mean, the way it works um, is that we just try to test as much as possible, as fast as possible, as much content as possible. And then we just see what the, what the response of the market is, and then we adapt so we can double down on whatever works and, you know, um, kill what doesn't work. But we have zero creative judgment, so we just have to test as much as possible. And that's sort of the whole growth game is, I think, the, the company that can uh, experiment, experiment quicker is the one that's going to win eventually. 
Because, I mean, whether it's the, the platforms and, and uh, whether it's like Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok, or Snapchat, or whatever, like what's in general you're using, they're moving so fast, uh, and things are changing so quickly, and they're introducing new features. It's just, it's impossible to, um, the only way to stay on top is just to experiment constantly all the time. Yeah. Well, and you guys, if I recall, you do something unique where it's, uh, you don't have an affiliate program necessarily, but you have people actually making, ad, like your users are making the videos and the ads that then sell your product, and then you're buying the rights to those and running ads with their content, right? Correct. Can, can yeah. you talk a little bit about like the, the rationale of why you're doing that? Yeah, so influencers have been sort of a big buzzword of, of 2019 and before as well and, and, and going forward. It will be. Uh, and influencers are an incredibly powerful tool, but not the way people think about it. It's not the influencer per se where somebody will, you know, record an, an ad for you and post it on an Instagram like a picture or Snapchat or all those things. It's nice, but that's not really the valuable part. And that's what most companies are, I think, missing. The real value comes from the content that they post. And then if you own the right to the content, you can run ads with that content, then it's so much more powerful. So it's more of a, a content generation strategy rather than distribution strategy. So then we'll, 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 we'll buy that content and then we'll, yeah, we'll run it on, you know, you could get one influencer to do like a very simple selfie style video talking about your app. And then I can take that video and then run it on Facebook and Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, everywhere, you know, Google, like in all the placements. Um, and that's the real value because it's, the thing is, and again, it goes back to the, the market is always right. And if I tried to make an ad, it, I would be nowhere nearly as effective as an influencer. Uh, that is in the right demographic, the right sort of uh, mindset, in the right country, and like right placements, right? So that's the real powerful thing. And the beauty is that um, you can be hyper uh, contextual and, and sort of relevant. So if my, let's say your target audience is, um, is 25-year-old guys in the UK that like cars, then you could just have a bunch of micro-influencers that are, you know, in the same demographic, 25-year-old guys in the UK, they could record your, your ad, it's a very simple selfie style, and you can run it towards that audience. So it's relevant and to, you know, to those users, and, and they're much more likely to sort of follow through and click and, and, and you know, trust the brand afterwards. Yeah, so uh, what are the dimensions on which you segment people? I mean, obviously, like, geographic could be one, and then gender and age, but it seems like that it gets really complicated quickly once you have, you know, this kind of infinite potential segments. And then how, where is the line between like diminishing returns where it's just too many, too many things to manage and now it's not necessarily right. worth the hassle? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So it, it, this is, it very much depends on which skill, skill you're at, right? So if you're just starting out, it might make sense to focus very much on one small audience and then find the influencers or content relevant to that. And then you could do sort of lookalike audiences around there and sort of start expanding from there. At our scale, uh, we have to run campaigns that are so broad that we're not really, um, that you, you don't really sort of focus on one geographical area. But again, we don't have creative judgment so that you'll sort of test everything and then different pieces of content resonate with different audiences. And then you can notice what works, what doesn't work, and then sort of adapt very quickly. But we don't. Do, do you ever? I mean, you must in your head when you when you are uploading these ads, kind of play that game of like predicting which one you think is going to do well. Yeah, of course. What like what has historically been? How does it line up with what you think is going to work versus what works? I realized that I really have no idea. Uh, of course, I play the game where I, I I get you know well, let's say I get twenty pieces of content a day, and then I. I launch it and I think, oh, this looks really cool. And this, like, they hit the right points. Is it like, like writing? Like, it's it might be the right audience. 
uh, or the like the person might sort of have chemistry like resonate really well, and then I launch it and like I realize that I know nothing when it gets to <laughs> content. Um, and I think it's impossible to predict. It's not just like me specifically. I think anyone, it's just impossible to predict. And what we see is, is that it's it's not always like the pretty pretty girl Instagram that you know gets the most attention. Uh, yeah, you had like a, a woman with her daughter or something. I remember there was like a very like right. crappily shot video, and it's and you look at it and you think like this is like there's no way this is going to produce exactly. And that was like the best performing one, I think you said. Yeah, yeah. So like I had this one ad where where there was like um, this girl was recording the video and she put like a weird sepia filter on the thing. It was low quality. Her baby's crying in the background. Like it was all terrible if you look at any like if you would judge the creative by any way. Yeah. But then it just works incredibly well. It's authentic, uh, presumably, because exactly. it's like people. Because it's, it's real. It. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, real. it's not an ad. Like, we have this sort of ad filter. As soon as you see an ad, you click away. Yeah. But if the ad doesn't look like an ad, if it's it looks like somebody likes your friend that you could trust, then you're likely to to listen to. It's got to stand out in that way, and it still says sponsored, so it's still officially an ad. We're not hiding or anything. Yeah. But it's much more. You know, it's driven by the people. It's not. Yeah, we're not creating in that way. One sort of little caveat. Caveat one where. Um, most of our users come from like US, UK, Canada, Australia, English-speaking countries. But um, early on, we sort of ran tests in you know almost all the countries that, that we could. And I noticed that in Asia, actually, a lot of the Asian countries, the produced ads worked better there, which was interesting. Hmm. So we're not focusing on Asia, and I'm not experimenting there. But when we did it, that was sort of there was a little interesting cultural shift. But in all the other Western um, markets, it was very much the um, the the more amateur, non-produced ads that worked really well. And, and there's been a couple of ads where I genuinely thought that I'm not going to run them because they just look bad. Like if, if if you were in a bigger company and you had somebody looking at your brand and like worrying about is it on brand or like are they representing us properly, yeah, um, they wouldn't run some of the creators that we ended up running and they ended up being some of the best, you know, best performing creators we've ever had. And so do you, what, what is your process for soliciting this user-generated content? Do you just, can anyone create a piece and upload it and you're literally looking through everything or do you have other people screening it and you get the best ones or how does that work? So now we need so much content that we, we actively reach out. So we just have somebody sitting on Instagram all day, every day and DMing people and, and getting the content and, or it's a Snapchat or TikTok or whatever that may be. But we need so much content that we are actively, yeah. But even at our scale, all you need is one person really to do the, the outreach. Um, and then we have one um, outsourced editor sitting in the Philippines. He does all the, sort of cuts the ass when he gets the creative, he puts in subtitles, all these things. And then I get the content and actually run the run it on the platforms. Cool. Okay, and how big is the team? So um, we're, I think, seven people full-time right now. So seven in, in total. There's a couple of freelancers here and there. But, you know, we're... Seven people and you're signing up between 20 and 30,000 <laughs> people a day. That right. is mind-blowing. You know, and we're competing with... Well, not competing, but we're playing in the category with Calm.com that has, what, 100 employees. Yeah. Headspace is 350, I think. Yeah. Um, so we're definitely <laughs> very different in that way. Hopefully they're not listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> I hope they are. Yeah, but yeah. we're not... Like I said, we're not competing, you know. A yeah. lot of people use both Reflectly and Calm or, or Headspace. It actually works really well as a, yeah. as a combination. And also Apple features us a lot and bundles with, with the two because it's sort of your mindfulness package. So I think we play together very well. Have you done anything in the way of like business development with peripherally related companies like a Headspace or a, a Calm.com? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of, a lot of exciting things. We try to be very, very focused. Um, if you look at sort of 
when Headspace and Calm were, were both starting out in, in the early phase, it wasn't sure who was going to be the winner. And now Calm.com is a billion dollar company. And I think one of the reasons is because they were super, super focused. And they grew just on the back of, you know, Instagram story ads and they got to, to where they are now, yeah. um, mainly. So, um, of course, there's a lot of uh, ideas that we have. And even if you go to, to the website, Reflectly, there's a little uh, work button. So we, we, we got also got a lot of, lot of inquiry to do like a B2B product. But um, we have, like I said, we have a, you know, less than 10% team. We only have three engineers working on the entire product. Um, three engineers supporting 5 million users. Yeah. So you can so imagine you can how strapped they are for, for time. So we have to be super focused. And Reflectly is, you know, it's not done. We, it, people love it, but there's still a lot of really cool new features that are coming out and improvements and, and some really exciting stuff that we're, we're going to be releasing very soon. Okay, yeah. So I've got all kinds of questions running around my head, like <laughs> how you can possibly support 5 million users with a team of seven, three of those being engineers. Right. So that's one. And then how do you pri- like how do you prioritize the feature development? Because that's a very small team. You, you have to be hyper-focused. So how, how, how are you doing that? I'm sure you get a lot of suggestions for, you know, things that people want the product to do. What is your, right. what is your lens by which you're, you're choosing this? Well, so the first reason why we can do it because the three engineers that we have are amazing. They're really, really world class, and um, and all three guys are just incredible at what they do. Um, and they, I think, they could be working at you know any other company. They could be at Google or Facebook or whatever, um, pretty high up. But they decide to 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 do reflectly. Um, so I think that's by far the biggest reason. They're just super talented people and super committed. The team is really, really rock star. And we do have to expand the engineering team. Like, the, it is a bit crazy the way it is right now. Yeah. But that's the number one, uh, the way we're doing it. Um, so uh, we have um, Daniel is working, who's the CTO, is working on the back end. Uh, we have Eero who's um, sort of uh, looking at the front end as well. And then Jacob, um, he's the chief product officer, who's doing sort of the design and the, the front end as well. Uh, and he single-handedly designed the whole product. I mean, he basically won the, the Google Award. Yeah, um, uh, and he's the one that, that does all the uh, a lot of the sort of thinking of you know which features are going out and uh, and and what is the the next thing to build. Obviously, we have a lot of feedback from users, but uh, it's not necessarily as easy as just building exactly what people ask for. We also have to think more strategi- strategically in terms of like which direction we want to go in and and not to not to build too many things. So this is a question I have. So uh, with marketing, like you said, you're very empirically driven. The market speaks. It tells you you don't like, you know, speculate any ideas that you have. You would reserve judgment and let the market kind of dictate what what works there. With the product, though, if you do that, it seems like you get kind of wagged around. Like you kind of have to lead with a vision right. and then validate some of that. So how is that different? And how do you guys operate on a product? You know, what's your, I guess, yeah, how do you, how do you, design with vision and yet still give users what they want. Yeah, that, uh, that's a good point and, and a good distinction that like in the marketing is very much um, zero sort of judgment. You just totally try everything and listen uh, to the feedback and you double down. Um, in the product, I think it's it's much more um, driven by the internal vision and, and sort of pushing it forward. Um, Which is what? Like what is your guys' internal vision? Like, do you have a long, like, a philosophy or, like, a grand goal you're trying to accomplish with this app? Yeah. So, I mean, the reason why we started is just anxiety and depression are obviously on a huge boom. Um, and it's not it, – and it's everybody. It's all the age groups in all the countries. It's like a global epidemic. It's a really, really big problem. Um, and it's specifically hitting 
um, the teenagers and, and the younger generation as well. It's the whole, we call it the Instagram generation, where you get a lot of the negative feelings and people feel jealous and they look at Instagram, scroll through their feed and they're feeling miserable because I'm not on a yacht or I'm not, you know, traveling around the world. They're just living their life. And a lot of people, like intellectually, you know that it's filtered content, that people are just posting stuff that looks good, but it still, you know, makes you feel like crap. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of, and we like you can see it everywhere. Um, I have four younger siblings, and uh, and it, it's it's a real issue when I when I look at sort of the behavior online, and not just them, but also me. You know, like our brains are just not designed to take so much input. It is so much chaos, um, and with all these sort of anxiety and depression and, and stress and everything around, Reflectly was a way to let people not only vent their feelings and thoughts, but also understand where they are emotionally at this very moment. And that sort of really helps to, to be more grounded and be able to deal with all this stuff. Is there anything in the app? I haven't used it, so I don't know how it works exactly. But, you know, journaling you could do with a piece of paper. Right. <laughs> it's the oldest thing in the, in the yeah. in, you know, or digitally you could use Evernote or some text-based tool to do, like just log your thoughts. Yeah. Is this app do anything interactive or prescriptive based on what you're writing? Is it like somehow altering what it does based on your input? So the way it works, you basically go in and you can you can sort of with a with like sliders and buttons very easily track your day how it was, good, bad, because of my friends or, or, or my relationship or my work or whatever, what kind of feelings I was feeling, if I was stressed or if I was happy or, or grateful. So you can very quickly sort of um, mark your mark your mood. And if you want, you can elaborate and actually write down the journal so you can, you know, have paragraphs and paragraphs of, of what you want to put in. Um, when we listen to, if you look at like the reviews and listen to people and what, what they say about um, Reflectly, they use it instead of a paper journal because it's so much easier for them. It's just more convenient um, and it's not as scary. If you sit down with a um, blank piece of paper and a pencil, you sometimes sit there and you're not sure how to start. So we give people also questions to think about and reflect. Okay. Um, we are careful with being prescriptive. Like we, we are not qualified to be like psychologists and treat, this is not a replacement for therapy by any means. Right. And I think we're pretty clear about that. This is not like if you have actual depression, you need to, you know, to speak with professionals. Um, but do you like, does your app sense a potential risk when like someone has had like seven days of I feel like shit and like, does your app say, hey, maybe you should think about getting therapy or something like that? Or or do you guys not want to touch that? We're very careful with yeah. that as well. Um, I, we are working on like, improving all of these things. So if, if somebody is having real issues, we want to you know make sure that we have a place to send them or, you know, way to help them uh, without interfering ourselves. Also, we don't want to, you know, maybe it's just somebody's just feeling, you know, you just maybe not have a couple of great days, but it doesn't mean you're depressed. And if, if Reflectly will suggest that you might be, that's also, right. you know, not very good. Right. So we're being very careful in, in sort of what what we tell people. Right. Cool. Um, can you talk me through just the the funnel? Like I, the app is free, I'm assuming, and then you charge what for a subscription at some point? Like yeah, there is, a, there is a premium feature. So we have annual and, and monthly. Uh -huh. uh, and I think also three months were... Testing, yeah. Okay, and with twenty to thirty thousand users a day, are you able to talk about like what portion of those people are then going on to start paying for it, or is that a yeah, that's talk a, about yeah. what a whole <laughs> yeah okay I don't, yeah we're not talking about that right now got it <laughs> cool 
Um, can okay, so give me like a day in the life of Darius. Like, what what are you actually doing every day when you you've got this content, this massive supply of content, and then you're somehow matching it up and trying to get these into ads that reach the right people? What is your process for doing that? Yeah, so vast majority. I mean, the exciting part is it's a little different every day, but a vast majority of it is running the campaigns on all the different channels uh, that we're running on and, like, looking at new channels that we introduce. And by but channels, you mean, like, TikTok Facebook, Instagram, yeah, yeah, like, all these channels. So running the campaigns um, and, like, seeing which ones work and which ones don't work. So you get sort of – it's uh, – when I talk about it, it's more of, I think, the, a, a good uh, comparison is, like, a stock trading, like day trading, uh-huh. uh, where in a stock trading, you're just, like, watching sort of – or, or so, watching and expecting what the price is going to go up or down, and you buy or sell based on that. Uh, this is very similar in a way that we're just buying and selling um, the, the attention. So I could see what's the price of attention on, on each of the different channels, and then we sort of either spend more money or spend less money there. So that's like sort of the biggest portion of it. And there's obviously like the getting the content in, but a lot of that is outsourced, so it's quite an autopilot. Um, um, yeah, so I think that's the, the, the biggest part of the, of the day. And we, Sorry, do you, do you notice that certain uh, ads work? Is there any patterns to the platforms of like, oh, these types of ads work really well on TikTok but not on Instagram? or? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So like each, each platform has its own behavior. And even though it might be the same users, but they behave differently on each of the platforms. That's super interesting. So you can't just copy-paste the same ad from Facebook to Instagram or, or like let's say from Instagram to Snapchat because that's quite different. Um, it's just not going to perform the same way. Like each channel has its own sort of nuances. And there's different features, different targeting, different demographics. Like you can uh, have different levels of of targeting. So each channel is quite different, and the and also the volatility of the prices is very different. So on Snapchat, uh, on Facebook and Instagram, the prices move very quickly. So every few minutes they'll change. Uh, you could refresh your you know campaigns, and, and they'll change very quickly. Um, and there's there's also normal fluctuations throughout the week. So uh, you know, Wednesday might be a different price than Saturday, for example, and that's just the same every week. And there's sort of the monthly. Right now, we're we're in, in uh, coming close to Black Friday, so the prices are starting to go up everywhere because e-commerce is spending a lot of money in the market. Right. Uh, so you're competing with all those because it's you're sort of it's a you're bidding on a certain price per install or conversion or click or whatever your your objective is. Are you using any automated bidding tools or are you, or is this literally you in front of like Facebook ad business manager with a spreadsheet tracking things? Uh, all manually. Yeah. We're yeah. not using any tools. So it's me and, and Jacob, the CEO, is also um, looking at this quite a bit uh, and we're doing everything manual. We tried uh, a bunch of automation tools, but nothing works better. Nothing gets better results than we can get right now. And I'm sure like in the future, there will be something that can automate it better. Um, whether it's like some AI-driven tool or, or something that can sort of be quicker, yeah. but not right now. There's also, you know, like fa- if you speak with with Facebook, they'll tell you that you shouldn't be adjusting the budgets too much because it sort of spoofs the algorithms and you get affected. But um, the the frequency at which you adjust budgets is also not sort of obvious. So we're we're doing everything ourselves manually right now. Well, can you? So I didn't follow that. So you said spook the algorithm, meaning if you play with the budgets too much, then yeah. it just kites up the price. That's or, what Facebook is saying. That I, I think they're when I talked to them, their official recommendation is like you should maybe once a day, um, but you could you know like f- you could try to do it you know adjust the budget ten times a day or like three times a day based on yeah. the, the price fluctuations, and you might see different results. So again, it depends on what scale you're at, but um, that's what we're we're seeing right now. And we're, and I think a big part for us going forward is introducing more and more channels 
uh, and just having bigger audience because at, you know at this point we're five million users and we're still far away from saturating the big markets like the U.S. But uh, uh, introduction of new channels will be exciting part for us. And so your biggest ones right now, I'm, I've got to assume it's Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and then TikTok. Or those? The yeah, I think four? like and there's a bunch of other ones, but this is what the, the I think what like everybody in in the health and fitness category is using. Yeah, and so, I think TikTok is a is an interesting one going forward. A lot of people have been looking down on TikTok, but uh, I think as of as of August, TikTok is getting more uh, installs per day than Instagram, which is super fascinating. I think that's a sort of a big change in. Uh, in, in, in the playing field. Uh, so I think TikTok is something that people should pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, so we were talking the other day when you were over here about uh, TikTok, and I'm just trying to get my head around why now? Like why <laughs> the Vine was here and died. Right. <laughs> you know, and now it seems like this is a resurgence of something that's essentially Vine, like, reincarnated. Right. So what, in your opinion, why has this TikTok thing just catapulted in popularity all of a sudden? Yeah, and... We still don't know if it's gonna be if it's gonna work well. Like you know, TikTok might die, and like within three months, it's gonna be another vine. Like that's a possibility. But um, as a marketer, I think you just wouldn't care because if you can get amazing results today and tomorrow, then like it doesn't matter if it goes down yeah. the week after. You keep those results, or you build sort of brand equity you can carry forward. So you could you know jump to other platforms, but um, carry that brand equity or or the performance with you. So I think it doesn't matter whether TikTok works or not in the long term. And a lot of people are still discussing like. Should I commit the time? But I think it's definitely worth a try. Um, so that's uh, that's very exciting. And the reason why why it works, if you look at the 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 ratio of people that actually create content versus people that consume content on TikTok is really really high for the creation. Um, and I think the major reason for that is because uh, TikTok makes it super easy to create content because it's more about it's more about the music um, that you the, so that you can choose music and then you sort of create a video. Um, together with that music, but it makes it super easy. You don't have, you, you know, you, there's no sort of pressure of like producing nice pictures like on Instagram or or if you're doing Instagram stories, like having certain nice backgrounds and all these things. It's not just about you. It's really about the music and then you can add your own sort of, um, uh, your own expression to it. Uh, so that's why I think a lot of people are, are, it's just much easier to produce. Got it. So it's almost like the same, the same effect that it's at work with you guys in journaling, where you're prompting people and you're making it easy to kind of get them started and feel comfortable with it. It's almost like that exact same effect is maybe what is accounting for the success of TikTok. They're, they're, like the music is kind of like the, oh, here's a nice thing. You can just like plop in whatever story over that. And it's, it's not necessarily, I feel like Instagram is like this pressure to be like those very yeah. high quality production, exactly. you know, instant influencer. Yeah. Photos. Absolutely. It's, it's the convenience. Like people really, really underestimate the power of convenience. I think that's like probably number one reason why TikTok is, is getting so many users. Yeah. For, in my opinion. Cool. Um, here's a question. Like, how do you decide what to do each day? Like, are, are, is this, you're, you're very committed to this approach of like, we've, we know that it's these, these platforms, we've got this strategy with user generated content. And I'm basically just like day trading, like you said, right. and, you know, all day long. But at what point do you step back and say, like, is this still the best use of my time? Or is there something bigger that I should be working on? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So like the, the goal is very clear, grow, 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 grow. And we haven't raised venture capital. So we don't have the luxury to just burn into a lot of cash. We have to actually, you know, we have to be very careful the way we run campaigns that we have to make money every time we, we spend money. Um, so I think in that way, we also don't have the luxury. So when I think about what to do next, it's sort of, it's like a, uh, well, it's like a daily mix of as long as things are working really, really well, then it's great. But everything starts to stagnate at some point. 
um, you know, like Instagram prices have, and TikTok is working really well, but it's also going to stagnate at some point. And, and once things slow down, it's good to have that a bit of an emergency because it makes you like sort of you wake up and you, st- if you realize like, oh shit, we have to do something and you start experimenting on different platforms everywhere. Yeah. So part of that is like, like the ability to run small tests on a lot of interesting new platforms, for example, or different creatives or different targeting. Uh, and then just as long as things are working well, you're going all in, but everything slows down at some point. And then that, those are, I think those are also the, the very interesting points when things slow down that you have to, you have to be creative and sort of innovate and, and like build new things that you haven't tried before. So it's good to sort of uh, yeah, get kicked every once in a while. What, what, give me a feel for the these loops, like these experimental loops. Are we talking like you run a week of ads or are we talking like you run an ad, these ads for a day and then kill off the ones that aren't working? Like what time frame are we working with? Yeah, so again, it depends on how much money you're spending and what's your scale. Um, at our scale, like we have to grow so fast, you could literally you could launch 50 new campaigns on Facebook and within a few hours you'll see uh, if they're working out, you can just kill whatever's not working and then you know double down on things. Um, I think Facebook's official recommendation is that each creative should have at least 8,000 impressions. From my experience, I think like 2,000 impressions is enough for you to see a pattern. And then you know what's your baseline price. And if it's just a little bit lower than the baseline, you could try to push a bit heavier. You could, you know, sort of double the budget. Yeah. Um, and if it still stays there, you could just keep increasing the budget until, you know, at some point you'll spend $10,000 on one ad and then, you know, it sort of sl- slows down. And then you have to find the next one. Um, but I think at our scale, you have to be testing a lot, a lot of campaigns. And the quicker you can act, the, the, the easier it is. Yeah. On, on, like, on Snapchat and TikTok and Google or search ads or some of the other platforms, you, you don't get the results as quickly. So you have to sort of, you can't iterate as fast. Got it. So it sounds like we use a tool called Optimizely on our website for mm-hmm. A-B testing, like landing page copy and whatnot. Yeah. And it sounds like it's exactly the same thing, like based on the like the size of the difference. If it's like a huge result, you don't need a whole lot of trials yeah. to be able to kind of know that there's a, an, an effect at work. But if it's like a very insignificant result, you got to run far more just to be able to tell if that's... Absolutely, yeah. So like when you're running camp, you either have time or money. Right, so you could either have like a tiny budget of ten bucks, and you could run an ad for four weeks because you have the luxury of, you know, you're not in a rush, or you have to spend, you know, a thousand bucks a day, like to see what what, and, but then you get the results within a few hours. Yeah. So it's just like, you have one of those two variables, and then you can yeah see how fast you can go. Dope. Um, if you had this is an interesting question. So if if these four platforms like personify them, pretend that Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok are people. <laughs> how would you describe like who is who is each character there? It's an interesting one. <laughs> and I want to take a second to briefly pause here and tell you about an exciting project that I'm working on. I recently left my job of five years to go full time on a side project that I started called Charity Makeover. This is a hackathon that brings volunteer knowledge workers together to build game-changing digital assets for local charities in a single day. Think of it like a habitat for humanity, only with virtual assets instead of physical houses. I recently deployed a platform that enables anyone to bring this movement to his or her city. If you think you might be interested in being the admin for your city, visit charitymakeover.org podcast to learn more. And now back to the interview. Well, the, okay, so the first one that comes to mind is... TikTok, that's like the 16-year-old dancing girl in the U.S. that's doing silly things. Uh, and the cheerleader, and she gets a lot of attention in, in her high school. Is that at 16? In her school. That's like the first one that comes to mind. Facebook is now like the grandpa 
Facebook is, yeah, yeah. is growing old. The audience is also getting older, and, and the engagement is, is not as, as much. Yeah, young people, I guess, are fleeing that platform. Like, they're just not using it at all. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's Instagram is still getting a lot of attention, and and, and that's interesting. Um, but, yeah, not nearly as much as, as Facebook. And TikTok is, like, the new kid on the block. And then Snapchat is, like, I think the sad kid that, that TikTok overshadowed it, even though, you know, uh, Snapchat was before it, but never got the potential to grow as, as much as Snap. And it's also sad because like Snapchat invented the story format and then Instagram borrowed it very quickly and in, in, yeah. in Facebook stories as well. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it was Evan, their founder, turned down a buyout offer from uh, Facebook. Why can't I think of his name? Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. And uh, so I think it was kind of like the vengeful, like, okay, right. we're just going to rip off exactly what you did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and that's, that's kind of the game you're playing. Like we're not in the patent pending world anymore right yeah and we can see that reflectly like we like a bunch of apps just basically copy pasted everything we do yeah and then raise capital and then try to you know like outdo reflectly um so that's just that's the world you're playing in yeah so but the defensibility it sounds like is maybe your process for growth like they they can copy the whatever front-facing features they can see in the app itself but unless they truly understand your method by how you're approaching this this sounds like uh, an important part of the whole the puzzle that you're doing. Yeah, but I think that's also fairly easy to copy. Um, I think the only real defensibility in like going forward for any of these companies is brand. I think that's like really the only like if we feel another crisis next year and just shit goes down and everything breaks. Um, yeah. I think like brand is the only thing that's gonna like, sort of keep you alive. I think. Do, have you guys thought about doing any kind of like user to user type stuff? Like because that 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 is an area where if you do that right. Users supporting other users seems like a very defensible. It's impossible to steal your user base at that right. point, right? Um, yeah. So one thing with Reflectly is that it's very intimate, right? Yeah. So journaling, like by definition, you're putting your biggest fears and dreams and thoughts into yeah. uh, into Reflectly. So people are very private about you know doing it, like about sharing or anything at all. Uh, we do have a strong community on Facebook, like a group, and uh, it's growing super fast and. And people are like really, really engaged and very happy there. But uh, but also we're very careful about what we do in the product because it's it's a very personal experience. Uh, there's a reason why you know, like you can buy the diary with a little lock on it. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's the same with with Reflectly. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, we had started talking before we started recording about this idea of habits and rewiring your brain. Hmm. Uh, just talk about that. I don't know. Like, I, I, don't, I mean, I have my own thoughts, but I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts about, you know, if that's possible and how it works and, and how you guys recommend that. Right. I mean, well, like from the results, you can see it's obviously possible to to build new habits and, and kill old ones. It's not the it's not the easiest thing to do, but it's definitely very doable. Um, and I think one, like one of the key things when we look at habits is, again, it's convenience and like lowering the bar and making it super easy. Um, to get started in a new habit. So I think, when, like if you compare it to exercise, I think the best exercise routine is the one you're gonna stick to. Maybe it's not 100% optimized and you're not, you know, you're not, it's not the best diet or it's not the best exercise, but like as long as you're doing it, it's better than, you know, having the best um, exercise routine in the world that you're not doing and you're looking at it on a sheet of paper, on a couch, for example. Yeah, perfection then, is the enemy of good enough. Or very much like so, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's the reason why Reflectly has been so popular and, and a lot of people ask you the same question of like, why don't you just use a paper and, and pen journal? Um, but it's 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 the, the convenience of it. And that's I think that's why we're able to 
build that habit is is because it's so easy to get started and it literally t- can take you know 20 seconds and you're done if that's what you want to do or you can sit there and you can write for an hour and you know that's also a possibility yeah. and i think a big part of it is also um one lowering the barrier and then two knowing that when you're building a new habit you're not gonna be hitting a 100 percent success rate so you might you know fall off the wagon and uh, shit is going to happen and not beating yourself up or like not thinking like oh i exercise for seven days in a row then one day i didn't and now like it's all over and same with journaling like if i stop journaling for for a week like i think we're very very good and we're very focused at reflectively to not make people feel bad when they're not using it and not like creating additional anxiety like the whole point of reflectively is that you should you know relax and get yourself out there without feeling the pressure. And if we would send people notifications every day and, and emails every two days and like keep pushing them, people right. would just then be at freaking some point out. They, they rebel and exactly. Saying, and then like you're killing the whole the whole idea. Yeah. Uh, so I think also a big part of that habit building is stepping back and say like, hey, if you don't use Reflectly for three days or, or a week, like whatever, it's, it's fine. We're, he- we're here whenever, you know, you need Reflectly. Yeah. Yeah, I use, um, so we were also talking about Zero app. Yeah. Right? Well, actually, let's. you have a podcast of your own that you're starting. You just right. recorded your first episode, <laughs> so congrats. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just, uh, yeah. Uh, yesterday, we recorded the first episode, and we talked about habits for an hour and a half. Yeah. With uh, with Matt, uh, he's the head of product at uh, Zero Fasting, and you and I are both users of Zero. Yeah, and, and that's one that came recommended to me uh, by Buddy, and I've been using that now for about two months. Uh-huh. And uh, it's just a timer. It's like the simplest thing. Right. And yet, but it, and yet it, it's so, the usability of it is so nice. And exactly. it's, it's just enough where you want to keep the street going. Yeah. And it makes you feel good when you hit the fast. And so it's just like, it. it I think it's just like the perfect like hitting all the right dopamine triggers or whatever you want yeah. to say to make you feel good when you continue doing it. Absolutely. But like it's just the functionality of it. It's just a timer, really. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same question people have, like, when they talk about zero, like, why don't I just use my alarm clock? I'm like, sure, you could. But if you look at people's behavior and pattern, they're so much more likely to stick to it if they use zero. So zero grew to 3 million users organically. They have zero paid acquisition, and they're at 3 million users. Uh, and they have a like, similar team, like Reflectly. I think they're around 10 people now. So it's like really, really incredible what, what they're working on. And that's the whole conversation we had with, with Matt yesterday. I think, and the way they work on habits, and we sort of, we had like a discussion, like what is it about Zero? And also like Fitbit, he worked at Fitbit before. What was it about these companies that are great at building sort of habits? Um, so f- the first one was having a goal that's visible, like knowing that you're Zero and you know that you want to fast for 16 hours and then eat for eight hours, number one. Uh, number two is like knowing your progress on that goal. So whenever you open the app, you see like, oh, I've already done 15 hours of, of fasting today. And it makes you feel really good because you have that little circle that's almost complete and yeah. it's really satisfying. And the third part is like knowing that you are going to fall off the wagon and then not making you feel bad. And I think the, like these three things are really the the key. Uh, like that's sort of the conclusion we had yesterday with Matt as the key to building habit-forming products and, and companies. Yeah, there's a, an amazing book I read called Power of Habit where there's a three-part loop, and I'm probably going to screw up what the parts are, but it has to do with, like, the cue, the response, and the reward. And it's it's no more complicated than those three yeah. things. And when they're all aligned, you can, like, they're saying basically that is the secret to rewiring your brain is to get all three of those things in alignment, and it turns into this nice little kind of, like, feeding, self-feeding iterative loop. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah, that's that's also what we talked about. Like, you have to have those sort of triggers, and you have to have the feedback, and... Yeah. and the reinforcement for that. And I think also a big part um, of habits and what we spoke with with Matt is that you have to, um, if you want to 
kill a current habit, you have to replace it with something else. So, for example, I, I'm not drinking alcohol um, for half a year. Um, now, I think it's been like five months. Uh, and the, like the most difficult thing is when I'm standing at a bar, I need to have something in my hand, right? So you have to replace the, the habit. So I do non-alcoholic beer. And that's, you, you get, you know, it's the easiest way to sort of get over it. Yeah. Cold turkey is, is, is not ideal if you don't replace it with anything else. Yeah, yeah. Well, because then your friends come up to you and they're like, hey, why are you yeah, not exactly, drinking? Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's just easier to have a, a, like, or for me, it was like a soda with lime in it. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a vodka soda, exactly. but it's just a, like a club soda with lime. And yeah. Like, huh? So, yeah, so if I hang out with my friends that drink a lot, I party a lot, I just do the, the tonic without the gin, and yeah. that it fools them enough where <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can still have the social life, but not that. But yeah, that, that's also part of habits. You have to sort of have a, have a replacement uh, if you're trying to kill any habit. Yeah. W- way back in the day in college, uh, I smoked briefly, and it was, I remember getting over that involved a combination of pistachios, sunflower seeds, and gum. Oh, wow. And I realized it was just a habit. It was just like an oral fixation. I had to do something, yeah, just something. past the time and like failed at quitting until I had those things. And then that, that was kind of like the replacement of that oh, habit really. that was necessary. Well, congratulations on, on quitting. A lot of it's, it's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. yeah obviously, there's um, there's the, the physical actual addiction, which is, you know, much more difficult to, to quit. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. Well, so one last kind of major line of questioning here, and that is, uh, let's talk about the role of product market fit versus growth hacking and when it makes sense. Like you said, you got, you got hired on. And I think you said you just like dismissed the growth hacking team because it's like, no, guys, we're going to focus on product market fit first. So can you talk about the relationship to product market fit and when it makes sense to then transition and focus on growth? Yeah. So, um, the when people look at reflectly or when I talk about reflectly, uh, I think my the biggest point I'm trying to communicate get across, uh, and if you should if you take anything out of this whole talk, like this is the most important thing, is that product is way more important than like marketing or growth and all these things at the early stage. Like when you're kicking up and you're starting off, you absolutely need to have the product market fit, and then you you pour money into marketing and growth to really really scale it. Um, and this is why I think Reflectly has been so good and, and, the, and the, the founders have been so focused uh, is that when the three founders started Reflectly, um, they grew organically to 400,000 users. They haven't spent any money, like nothing. They just focused on the product. Um, and then they hired me uh, to come on board and, and like start, you know, paid acquisition and then scale it from there. And that's how we got to, to 5 million users. But like you mentioned, there's, there's been other companies where I've joined where, where I, would, I would get on the team. And they have like a growth team of let's say five, six people, but they don't have product market fit yet. And it's like you have this huge leaky bucket and you're just trying to pour more water into it, but that's sort of a waste of time. Like we should, and that's, I've joined other companies and that, and I've like my first, first thing I did was like getting rid of people on the growth team because you don't need a growth team unless you have product market fit. Um, so, but how do you know, I mean, ever, there's always some just, amount of attrition in any SaaS app, right? Like in, it, it's just a, a fact of life. But at what point does it make sense? What is an acceptable amount of leakiness? And when should you say, no, we're leaking too much, we should stay focused on product market fit? Right. That's, well, that's very um, tricky, I think. And that's why people get it confused because it, it, it depends on like your vertical and, and the type of business and all these things. Um, so why Combinator, they have a good saying, I think that says that uh, you have product market fit when your demand grows so much faster than you can keep up with. Like you literally cannot keep up with the demand. Uh, and I think that's so, so super rare and it's, you know, hard to see. Like, um, and one way to sort of describe it is it doesn't feel like you're pushing a boulder uphill. 
is that it's the other way around where you you know you try almost anything and it works like when you're growing uh, organically yeah and it's hard to yeah like i could tell you for like specifically you know health and fitness app category like what is the number you should be hitting i think the best metric to look at is retention uh and again the specific percentage is depends on your vertical and all these things but if you look at like day one retention, day seven, and, and, and day 30, like very simply, if people are coming back to your product, they like it. Like that's the simplest simplest sort of way to look at it yeah. uh, at, the, at the very beginning to get a sense of how much people love the product. And you could do some other things um, like understanding the like NPS score and all these things, but I think like at the very basic is um, retention. Yeah, cool. And unless your retention is off the charts, you should not be putting money on into growth and, and marketing at all. Yeah, there was a, one measure of this I heard. Uh, Sean Ellis is a really popular growth hack marketer guy. And he says it's like when 40% of your users, once they find out about your product, say they couldn't live without it. Right. When you, once they get a chance and they get a taste and they've tried it, and then you take it away and they say, oh, I, I, I need that. I can't live without it. That's kind of the, the litmus test. But I know there's different like retention-based. Yeah, yeah, like it, it depends on, you know, if it's if your app is meant to be used every single day, then people should be coming back every day. If it's e-commerce and they spend thousand bucks one day a month, then you know, like you're good to go. And that's, that's what you need. So it depends on wh- where, where you're playing. Right. But I think the best measure is like, yeah, are people coming back? Uh, the tricky thing, like founders by definition are very optimistic people. Otherwise they would not be doing this. And you almost look at like any signal from the audience and they go like, oh my God, this must be, this must be it. Or like, we just do one more feature and that's it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's confirmation bias though. Exactly. So very, what very you much see, so. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's where a lot of founders, like myself included, when I was like building startups previously, you would see any sort of, you get one positive review and you're like, oh my God, we got it. Like now we're going all in. Yeah. Um, but it's, and this, like I've, I've spent, for example, like before all this, I was trying to build a language learning startup and we spent three years and we haven't, you know, gotten to product market fit. But because I thought that like any positive signal is really the positive signal that was sort of confused and, and we dragged it on for three years. Yeah. Versus I could have just looked at retention and be like, this is terrible. Yeah. You know, and then, and then you know, it's, it, like you have to be realistic enough to, to, to understand that if it's bad, you need to change it. And it's not about, you know, adding more features necessarily. It, it's about, you know, like maybe fundamentally you just have the, you're broken on the wrong problem, for example. Yeah. Do you guys get approached by investors? Like I'm sure there, there's people who want to <laughs> throw money at you at this point. Like, yeah. But, yeah, like at this point, we've been contacted by every VC in the world, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's, what was your decision in, in not taking any money? And I, I, by the way, Pagely, the company that I work for, is self-funded as well. So we, we are in the same boat in terms right. of agreeing with Bootstrap. But what I, I would love to hear, like, your rationale, why you guys don't want to take money. Yeah, so we did raise a little bit of sort of like a like a ramen money, I would call it, uh, just like to pay for rent and expenses at the beginning. So we raised a bit of like um, angel money from... Uh, from a friend of, of the founders, but no, like, sort of venture capital. And, well, like, the obvious reason is that we don't, like, it's not, we don't want to give away any more of the company than we have to. We want to be able to not just own uh, more, but be able to control and make decisions um, as we do. And that's hard to do once you have sort of people on board that can also have a, co- have a saying. Um, obviously, we're looking for super smart people that could join the team, and that might be a way to, like, an investor on board that could you know, help us in that way but we just didn't need to raise money so we didn't because um, like everything was just working well and, and there was there was no outside pressure so not to say that we will never do it but um, 
we're in a good position where we could choose to take money from anybody at, at this point, I think. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it's, it's good. And, and that, like big part of that is, again, to the founders, they've, they've done a lot of decisions early on and they've made inc- like a lot of amazing decisions. The founders are really, really amazing what they do, um, all of them. So I, they've, they've been very, very smart the way they approach it. That's dope. Um, okay, so I lied. Actually, I want to ask you one more last question <laughs> no and then we wrap up here. Um, so you are not from here. Where are you from? I was born in Slovakia, um, and then I moved to the States when I was, I think, 14, 15-ish. What part of the States? Uh, Minnesota. Okay, yeah, Minnesota. I, uh, <laughs> I had a scholarship to play hockey. Okay. So uh, Minnesota is the best place to play, you know. Uh, yeah. What is it, 13,000 lengths with all the pond hockey. can go crazy. I went to a wedding in Owatonna, Minnesota. Oh, really? It was like the, I guess they're, they're what are claimed to fame was the largest Cabela's or the first Cabela's <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, there's not much there other than ice hockey. Yeah. yeah. But I had the pleasure, like I, I lived in, I went to school in Minneapolis and I had a great time. Cool. And then, but you're in Lisbon now, but not permanently. What's your, so you're, you're nomadic basically, which is why I'm going here because it's a <laughs> right. nomad podcast. So right. uh, t- talk about like what that travel has meant to you and where you're going next and yeah. Yeah. So after States, I, I lived in Denmark, actually. I lived there for, I think, almost 10 years. Um, and the last two years, I lived in Copenhagen, which is how I I, I met the founders. Um, actually, so it was a funny thing. I started using Reflectly as a user, and I thought it was a Silicon Valley company at first. Uh, I had no idea. Uh, and I just emailed the company, and I, I not, like it was an amazing product, but they're not doing anything from the growth or like marketing. And I just emailed the guys, and I said, like, hey, this product is amazing. I, I noticed you guys are not doing anything growth related. So like, I'm happy to help out for free because it's like a really cool product. Uh, let me know if you need any help. Um, and then I found out that actually the guys were also like moving to Copenhagen and uh, one thing led to another and I joined like shortly after. Wait, so that was why you moved to Copenhagen or you were already? I, I was already in, there. Okay. Yeah. I was working for another startup at the time. Uh, and then and, and like afterwards, I, uh, so it was very sort of serendipitous situation where they just happened to be in the same city at the same time. That's awesome. I thought it was a Silicon Valley company for some reason. Um, yeah. So I was in Copenhagen for two years uh, and then I started nomading um, this year and I've, I was sort of doing the... Uh, new country every month, like very, very actively nomading going around and everything from like Austin, Texas to like Budapest, Riga, you know, Bratislava, all these things. That's awesome. I had a really, really good time. Uh, and I was supposed to be in Lisbon just for one month. It was, again, just one of the many stops. And like I did zero research uh, about Lisbon. I had no idea about the community or like the tech scene or anything. I just thought like, hey, sunshine in November, I'm in. Um, so I came here, but within the first week, I just fell in love with the city. I was like, wow, this is really cool. Uh, and actually, I've decided to, to stay here long term uh, for the time. Well, long term, like at least, I think, for a year. So, <laughs> Which is like eons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in this world. It's, but like the really just the, the tech community is incredible here. There's so many, so many nomads and it's it, it's really amazing place. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm like I'm meeting a lot of incredible, incredible people here. So I'm going to stay for, you know, 2020 at least as well. And it's very affordable. If you don't work in Lisbon, I think it's, you know, the lifestyle is, yeah. uh, is amazing if you can uh, work the sort of the way we're doing. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, sunny and just um, now we're in November, but two days ago I was, you know, surfing at the beach that's like 30 minutes away. So yeah. it's a very good lifestyle here. Yeah, it's an amazing quality of life yeah. for what it is. Um, but if you're listening, you didn't hear that because we, <laughs> we want to keep yeah, it. We want to saturate too much. We want to saturate. But now also, I think the like um, Web Summit is, is going to be here for the next 10 years. So I think it's only going to grow as a, as, as a tech community, which is not necessarily you know, the best thing because the price will go up and all these things. But Yeah. 
Well, there's a real issue. There's a very real issue for locals here in terms yeah. of, I mean, this isn't unique to Lisbon. This is happening in San Francisco, for instance. But uh, displacing locals who are making Lisbon wages, but now you have such an influx of nomads and people Absolutely. earning like U.S. wages or yeah. Denmark wages. And uh, it's driving out some of those locals, which yeah, I, totally I, I don't know the right answer to that, actually. It's an interesting, do yeah. you have any thoughts on that issue? I'm, yeah, so it's... It's tough. Like, on one hand, I feel guilty because you could look at it like I'm contributing to the problem because I make money somewhere else and then I come here to spend it. But also, we're sort of spending it in this economy, right? So, yeah. like, in a way, we should be sort of helping. But I, I have a lot of, you know, digital nomads friends and they're buying properties. Uh, and, and the locals are, the prices are going up. And I heard, especially in the last five years, that prices really boomed, like real estate, but also everything else. Yeah. Uh, and I think the average salary, like, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's like around 800 euros. But like you won't find a comfortable apartment under under a thousand in the city. Yeah. So like nobody can really like, locals are being displaced, like you said. So it's yeah, it's a tricky one. Yeah. But but if yeah, so a lot of actually a lot of people from a lot of my friends that are here from the U.S. They say that it feels like early San Francisco, not only because it looks like San Francisco with the hills and it's the same bridge, yeah, the yeah. same architecture, the trolley cars, and everything. Exactly, yeah. like it looks the same, but it like it has a similar vibe where there's a lot of arts and culture here, and now tech is starting to move in, and it, it seems to be like going in a similar pattern. So I don't know if if it's gonna be sort of the the San Francisco of Europe, but yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me the solution has to involve some kind of you know, as, as much as I hate to say this, but like a tax on foreigners, right? Just to, to, you know, escrow some money and then contribute that back to the locals right. to subsidize their rent because they just don't have the same level of yeah. income. But they're actually doing the other thing. Like, they're going the other way where where the, the government has just created a bunch of... Golden um, visa. And, yeah, they're, like, incentivizing yeah, yeah. people yeah. to move here. So yeah. they're... I don't know. And there's all these, like... So most of the experts are getting at this specific program where you get... You can... You sort of get, like, a... Not citizenship, but residence here. And you pay, I think, the income taxes or, like, the pro it's, it's, like, 20, 22%. So they're actually incentivizing people to move in and pay less tax here, which is why, like, a lot of nomads are moving here. So it's the other way around. Yeah. But, yeah, I, um, I definitely have zero experience or expertise <laughs> no, in we're this. No, uh, we're not going to solve yeah. Portugal's uh, gentrification problem no, today. No, no. <laughs> um, all right. Well, so this last part of the interview, we're going to just shift into a very uh, tactical rapid-fire thing. I call this the breakdown. So are you ready for the breakdown? I, uh, let's try it. Let's do it. Okay. Breakdown, baby. Uh, what is one book that has profoundly affected your thinking? Um, or sculpted you in some other way? Okay, the, the first one that comes to my mind is uh, As a Man Thinketh. Um, that's not business book at all, but I think if you look at, like, which one book changed my behavior the most, that's As a Man Thinketh. Cool. That's on my Goodreads. Uh, maybe I'll elevate that to the top there. That's a good one. Cool. Uh, what about what is one person you would love to have dinner with? It can be living or dead. Oh, wow. Uh, I think Richard Branson. Okay. Um, just because I, I started, like, the whole entrepreneurship and, like, trying to build companies after I read his first, first time I read it, one of his books. Uh, and he was really, like, sort of the guy I always looked up to. And he seemed to have, like, the great balance of being obviously a great businessman, but also, like, uh, having a good lifestyle and, and doing crazy adventures and, you know, like going off and I'm a bit of a adrenaline junkie myself. Yeah. So I, I, I like the idea that you could do both. You don't have to be just a suit and tie or you don't have to be just a, a poor uh, athlete or, or somebody yeah. that just like lives in a cave. Um, so I think Richard Branson and I got to I got to sit in a charity dinner once 
where he was attending, and I got to ask him a question. So that was like one of the highlights of my life. Where uh, what was the question? Um, so this was I when I was in college, I built a nonprofit that was sort of working with sustainable construction, and my question was, when you're when you're building a company, like how much effort should go into into business versus like giving back to the community and all these things. Uh, I think my question would be very different now, and and also what he said is that building a business is so hard that the only thing you should be focusing on is building that business. And once you succeed, then you can think about like giving back or having a student, like all these things. But uh, it is just so hard that if you're distracted by trying to be too charitable, you're going to end up being bankrupt. Cool. It's funny. uh, One of my guests, Christian Ostervain, a Danish guy, I forget what episode he was, but he uh, cited that same book. And he was actually, when he read it, he was in prison when he read that book. And it was the thing that like turned him around he kind of like hit bottom and then that was like his inspiration oh crazy yeah yeah that has been really good and like for me i have to say it was in combination of coaching so i got a performance coach this year and like my level of happiness and productivity has changed drastically this year in the last 12 months so i think it's a combination of those cool check that one out too um what is one tool or hack that you use that saves you time money or headaches um, it can be a piece of software. It can be just like a, a workaround or something. Uh, I think it's the uh, the Aura Ring. I think you have yeah, to say, yeah, yeah got the this. same one. Uh, I actually just got it a few weeks ago, so it might this might be recency bias. But um, being able to improve my sleep has such a big impact on everything else. And like properly sleeping um, at least eight hours a day, uh, it just makes your productivity, happiness, health, like everything is just... It's so important. So another book uh, I just finished reading is Why We Sleep. Uh, uh, literally, I'm, I'm 20 pages yeah. away from finishing that one Man, as well. It blew so. my mind. Like, I thought sleep was important before, but now it's just, holy shit, like... 100%. Like, my bedtime is sacred now. Yeah. It's really sort of makes you makes you wonder. And I think, like, a lot about... Because I was a athlete for, like, a big part of my life. So I, I, like, I knew about the performance aspect. But when I shift to, like, longevity aspect, then really, like, I see that sleep is super important that way. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to link in the show notes to a talk that he did on Joe Rogan's podcast. Mm. Matthew Walker is the author author of that book. Um, 100% concur that that is just a game changer. I recommend everyone read it or at least listen to that episode because it is – it's, it's frightening how important it is and how under-prioritized it is in our society. Totally. And and when, like, I guess the thing that just gets me is, like, he says, you can't pay down a sleep debt. Yeah. These things that are happening and, like, you know, if you're – the NREM sleep doesn't occur and it doesn't clear out the neurotoxins and then, like, that damage is done. Right. And that you you don't get to, like – oh, I'll just sleep it off on the weekend and I'll get, you know, I'll recapture some of that sleep that I lost. It's like, no, that, that is just – damage exactly so it is so scary and you know everything so like if you're building if you're trying to build a business like you absolutely need to read this book and understand sleep because like everything from your own behavior to your employees behavior uh, i think will be massively affected i think it was um jeff bezos that wrote an article that said like why it's profitable that uh, amazon employees sleep at least eight hours a day i think that was the title or something like this where he talks about like really it's where we think of like hacking of like sleeping less and all that and i like tried it when i was in college like living on four hours a day yeah and now that i read a book it scares me how much damage i must have done to my body and and like everything else it's it's insane yeah yeah well our uh, our readiness scores uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now yeah. it was actually i, sh- I should be ashamed because it was really really low uh this morning i was, I was not doing a very good job sleeping yesterday yeah but uh yeah how, how do you 
so I'm just curious because I use this. I've had it now for about two months okay. uh, as well as with like the Zero Fasting app. And I find it to be useful. Like it doesn't actually change your sleep, right? It's just logging. It's just, you know, yeah. analytics basically on, on various factors. But how are you using it? How, how does it help you to change your sleep? So this, like, this ties really nicely to habits, right? Like how we talked about that, A, having a goal of habit and then knowing where you are um, in, in sort of that phase. So the biggest thing is just awareness, like knowing. And I tried to use like all these like sleep analysis apps and I, so I compared them with the ring and, and, and the sleep analysis would show me like I'm getting 100% or, um, like efficiency of sleep. And then I check my hour ring and it's like, no, it's actually 72% or something really, really low. Yeah. So it's like one knowing um, where you stand and it just gives you so much in-depth information. Like it tries to suggest the best bedtime for you and then you have all these like heart rate variability and temperature variation and, and heart rate, you know, and all these things. So you can, I, I think the really interesting part of the ring is going to be like in five years when I've been able to like measure all these vital signs and then I could really correlate like if I'm fasting, for example, what are the effects if I'm exercising or how much I'm exercising. Yeah. I do a lot of like, um, long runs so I've just trained for a marathon and then see like what your body does when you just run 10, 20, 40k uh, what are the effects so I think that'll be the really interesting part where you can accumulate and then going even more for- forward like once you can connect the data from zero fasting to to reflectly to to yeah. aura ring and like well they have their own note you're right. Like they have a notes yeah. capability. I yeah. use that. Uh, if I didn't sleep well one night, I'll go back a day and I'll know like, okay, well, what did I do last night? And try to like see if there's a pattern, right. and start to log things. But it seems like if you guys tie into Apple Health, which do you tie into Apple Health? We don't. Perfectly no. No. We don't. Um, but yeah, at some point, like Zero does though. I think they're doing it. Zero yeah. and Aura and like RunKeeper and all these things I use that are feeding data into yeah. Apple Health. Um and then, but yeah, like the journal overlay would be an interesting, you know, another yeah, that thing makes to sense. put on so top like, of that. Like, how was your day? And yeah. yeah, I think like once we, and I think this is a really interesting thing to consider going forward. Like we have so many data inputs and just like, if you could just get some of the information from your phone, like you have your location and how much you move and, and how much time you spend on your screen connected with your, like how much time you spend working on your computer and having that light in your eyes, like for example, late at night. Yeah. I think being able to like connect all this information, that'll be super interesting. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people are working on like sort of bio OS yeah. and connecting this, but I think that'll be a super, super cool company, whoever builds that thing. For sure. All right, uh, two more questions. What is one important truth that very few people agree with you on? This is the, the Peter Thiel question. Peter Thiel question, <laughs> you got it. Um, I've, so I'm going to cheat on this one. I don't have a good answer. I, I've given a lot of thought because, I, yeah, I, I read it with, with Peter Thiel. Um, that's a tough one. I don't have a good answer that I'm comfortable sharing. <laughs> okay, no, that's fair. Yeah. I actually don't either, and I've asked this question of, 30 plus people and yeah. it's, it's a tough one it's uh, there's a reason why he asked it yeah i guess yeah yeah well he asked it to determine uh of founders usually if they have a firm yeah. conviction yeah. that is like you know he says the way you win in investing is by betting big and on something that's very controversial and like everyone else thinks is wrong but you're right on it so i think it's his way of getting to that question with a lot of new founders absolutely yeah i mean like if you want to get super like specific it's for example like the way we use influencers and micro-influencers, you know, that it's not really the distribution, but it's the content. But I'm not at all the only one. Like, this is Gary Vaynerchuk has been preaching this for the longest time, and I'm sure there's a bunch of other people. So I, there's nothing, like, unique that, you know, I've invented. Very few people agree with. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. 
Uh, all right, last question. If you had a time machine to go back to your 20-year-old self and give yourself any bit of advice, what would you say? <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting question because I actually wrote a book on this. Oh, wow. Um, Perfect. So when I, like, when I was, I think, so now I'm 30, but I think when I was 26, I basically asked a lot of people this question. Everybody from, like, Noam Chomsky, who's one of the biggest philosophers, uh, to, um, yeah, like, super interesting people. And I asked them this one question, and then I, like, put, toge- put together a book and, 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 and published it. That's awesome. Uh, so, um, well, the, so so two parts to this question. What is your answer to this? And then is there a pattern that you noticed of all the people you surveyed? So the answer is the same for both. Like my, my answer is the pattern, but I'm, okay. So the answer is, it's going to be all right. Like, sure, we'll be fine. You're going to be okay. Like, you don't have to freak out. But I'm, I, like, I'm, if I could actually go back and give myself advice, I wouldn't. Because I love my life right now. I, I'm enjoying every single day and I would not want to change anything. And I'm scared that if I would tell my younger self to chill out, I wouldn't be where I am now. Mm. So maybe it's, and I think like, a lot, so this was also the pattern in the book. Like a lot of the, I spoke with a lot of successful people um, there and they all said like, just, you know, calm down, sort of chill out, like enjoy yourself and uh, it's going to be all right. But maybe if you would chill a little too much, maybe you wouldn't be able to, you know, build whatever success and like on your own terms, whatever that might mean for you. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I, yeah, a little so, bit of healthy dissatisfaction is kind of a good thing. Yeah. Maybe it's not, I don't know. Maybe I was just stressed for no reason or I was, you know, frustrated for no reason. Um, maybe you don't lose that drive, but I love my life too much to be like willing to risk anything. That's awesome. I think that's a great, great piece of advice to end on. Um, Darius, if people want to check out your new podcast, how can they find it? Or how can they connect with you on social media? Or where do you want to send them? Um, right. So I think the easiest way, so I don't actually, I don't have the name for the podcast yet because <laughs> we just started recording the first uh, couple of episodes. I think the easiest way uh, is probably my website. So if you go to um, appmarketingguy.com, uh, they'll direct you to sort of my my site. And then I, like, I sort of write about um, like my thoughts on you know app marketing and marketing in general, um, and the podcast will be there as well. The yet-to-be-named podcast, and I will... If you have a substantial social media following and consider yourself a micro-influencer in the digital nomad space, I invite you to check out a program I'm in the early stages of rolling out. I call it the Advocate Program for Nomad Podcast and Nomad Prep. It's a multi-level affiliate program that enables you to monetize the social media following you've built by referring my course to your followers. You can earn commission on both students you originate directly as well as students who come in via the advocates you originate, essentially a downline, and all through simply introducing your following of aspiring nomads to a course that can help them more confidently make the leap. I'm in the process of selecting a small group of early advocates who I'll be working with closely to refine this program and make it effective. In exchange for early participation, those influencers will be grandfathered in at the highest level of commission that will ever be offered in this program. To learn more about the program and the referral numbers necessary to generate a four-figure monthly side income, visit nomadprep.com slash advocates and apply today. That URL again is nomadprep.com slash advocates. Help aspiring nomads make the leap and get paid for doing so. You've been listening to the Nomad Podcast. For links to all the resources mentioned in this episode, transcripts, show notes, photos, and more, visit nomadpodcast.com. Nomad Podcast is supported in part by Nomad Prep, an online academy to help aspiring digital nomads make a successful transition. Take the first four days free by visiting nomadprep.com forward slash podcast.